0: I'm Fritz Coleman, And I'm Louise Palanker, and this is Media Path.
1: This is a show that we uh, get a chance to become captivated by a certain topic, and then we take you along on a scenic back route through books and movies and music and articles, whatever are related to whatever our current obsession is.
0: Today we are thrilled and honored to welcome acclaimed author-journalist Michael Isikoff. Michael Isikoff is an American investigative journalist who has worked for the Washington Post, Newsweek, and NBC News. He is the author of two New York Times bestsellers, maybe three, he can clarify, Uncovering Clinton, A Reporter's Story, and Hubris, The Inside Story of Spin, Scandal, and The Selling of the Iraq War, co-written with David Korn. He is a frequent guest on MSNBC, CNN, and other TV talk shows. Isakoff is currently the chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News, and your book with David Korn, Russian Roulette is now available in paperback, along with already Kindle, hardcover, audio, and CD. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit, Michael, for us?
2: Sure. And it actually was the Russian Roulette was actually a number one New York Times bestseller, so um, it definitely qualifies uh, as the uh, as the third of the group. But um, and and is just now out in paperback, new and expanded with a uh, new epilogue on the um, Trump impeachment saga. Um, Oh, and um, uh, some sort of fresh insights into what happened there. Um, And, you know, it is a book that, uh, you know, in some respects is 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 newly relevant uh, right now with all the disclosures about uh, the Russian uh, intelligence services paying bounties to kill American soldiers in Afghanistan and the uh, somewhat muted response to that from the Trump
1: administration. Michael, let's talk about that. Uh, I I mean, every day in the Trump administration, I've said today's the day when we hit the tipping point, but it just seems like this particular episode, his denial of having been briefed on this um, seems to be a a change point. What I mean is now uh, people that have the children fighting in Afghanistan, people that serve the country, his whole military base is being threatened by his, um, his denial of having been briefed by this. I mean, nobody is surprised that the Russians came up with this way to go after American troops, but I think what's dark about this is his lack of reaction to it and denial that he was briefed. Do, do you think Look. this is going to be a change? I mean,
2: it's hard to say because there have been so many moments uh, where uh, Donald Trump has done things or said things or tweeted things that, um, you know, people thought, aha, this is going to be the turning point. This is when the scales drop from the eyes of the uh, Republicans on Capitol Hill who have defended him. This is when his followers will finally see through him. Um, So I don't know. I mean, certainly over the last uh, several weeks, uh, his poll numbers have cratered. I think uh, it's a combination of the COVID crisis uh, and now the spike in uh, coronavirus cases in the uh, in the southern states, uh, the Black Lives Matter protests and and the way he's responded to them. Uh, I, I you know uh, there's been a sort of steady um, uh, number of these um, of these sort of political fiascos for the president uh, this comes on top of that. We will see we will see um, whether he can get by it but I think um, the in many ways the the Russia story is is, is the central one because it's been such a defining uh, story for the entire Trump presidency. It appears um, to be his
0: one consistent viewpoint. The one thing that he stays uh, very focused on is his uh, devotion to, to Vladimir Putin. And we, exactly. you know, we saw with Black Lives Matter, we, we, we saw e- tragic event after tragic event, and then we hit the tipping point of Mr. Floyd. Do you feel like perhaps when it comes to our troops, which we hold so sacred, this is that tipping point for... Uh,
2: You know, it could be. I mean, you know, there are certain caveats here. We do need to know more about the intelligence and exactly um, what it was, how it came in, um, what the confidence level of the various intelligence agencies were in it. There's pretty uh, intriguing... Um, uh, new reports about uh, financial transfers from the Russians uh, to uh, the Taliban that are um, that that leap out. We just reported on Yahoo News. I and a colleague, John Naylor, wrote about how actually the U.S. military had had intelligence for. Um, some years now about uh, Russian contacts with the Taliban, Russian uh, the Russians providing weapons to the Taliban and financial assistance. Uh, that goes back to uh, at least the 2016, the latter days of the Obama administration. And then by 2018, um, the U.S. military had credible reports that the uh, Russians were encouraging Taliban fighters to kill Americans. So, in some ways, this is part of a pattern of behavior uh, uh, that has led to the reports about the bounties. And the one consistent theme of Donald Trump's presidency is he doesn't want to hear or doesn't want to be briefed on um, reports of Russian misbehavior because anytime the subject comes up, it just reminds him of what he views as the Russia hoax, what he views as his political persecution by his enemies using uh, the Russia Russian intervention in the 2016 election as a way to raise questions about his victory over Hillary Clinton in 2016. That's something but- he cannot abide by. So instead of looking at this through the lens of What's best for America? What's best for our, uh, what's best for US Russian relations and how we must stop Russian aggression and Russian misbehavior? He looks at it entirely through the prism of himself. And is this going that- to somehow um, cast a cloud over him?
0: But you know that he knows it's not a hoax. You, you know that he knows that he's involved with Putin. So what, what are your theories like that you can't say on MSNBC because it would be conjecture, but what are your theories when you talk to David about the why of all of this? What do you well, got?
2: You look, we spelled it out in the book, I think, pretty clearly. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's no question that Donald Trump had wanted to Do business in Russia for years. There's no question that um, he uh, basically tried to establish a relationship with Vladimir Putin and, uh, you know. Praise upon Vladimir Putin and talked about what a great guy he was and tried to get together with him when he went to Moscow, when Trump went to Moscow in 2013 for the Miss Universe pageant. His main goal there was to meet Putin, uh, to forge a relationship with Putin. Why? Because, you know, his main interest there was developing a Trump Tower in Moscow, and he figured if he could get Putin's blessing for that, um, the deal would go through. Uh, uh, You know, on top of that, it's pretty clear that uh, uh, Trump saw an affinity uh, in Putin. Uh, Putin runs Russia the way Trump would like to run America, uh, basically with no backtalk from anybody or else. Uh, And, uh, you know, that's very appealing to uh, Trump. And it's also worth... um, uh, sort of, and, and again, we do this in Russian roulette. We just sort of con- construct or reconstruct how this relationship between uh, Trump and Putin evolved over the years. So Trump goes to Moscow in 2013, 2013 for Miss Universe. He actually signs a deal for that Trump Tower project. While he was there, a letter of intent to build it with a um, oligarch Aris Galerov, who was very close with Putin, who had just been awarded a medal by Putin. He was a a huge uh, real estate construction magnate in um, uh, in Russia, and it was the deal was going to be financed by a, a Russian state owned bank, and all that. In fact, this. That was in November 2013. In February of 2014, um, Ivanka Trump flies to Moscow and gets together with um, Emin Aguilarov, the pop singer son of the oligarch Aris Aguilarov, and they go scouting for potential sites for the Trump Tower Moscow project. That's February 2013. What happens? right after that, in March of 2014. Putin intervenes in um, Ukraine. He seizes Crimea. Um, He um, moves in the little green men into Ukraine. And the U.S. and the European Union responds by imposing sanctions on the Russians. This was the first time since World War II in which you know, a country had invaded another country, um, you know, and uh, had taken over its property. And um, this was taken over its territory. And um, so there's pushback. There's the imposition of sanctions. One of the entities that was sanctioned was the very same Russian state-owned bank that was going to finance the Trump tower deal in Moscow after those sanctions the deal uh, uh, sinks, the deal craters, it can't go through anymore. So Trump, from his perspective, the sanctions on Russia imposed because of its aggression in Ukraine tanked his business deal. It cost him money. And I think it tells you everything you need to know about Trump's attitude towards sanctions and sanctions imposed by Obama. Uh, and um, uh, uh, you know Trump's it, it colored Trump's entire perspective. And you see, by the time in 2015 when he starts running for president, he very early on makes clear in a uh, in an appearance in Las Vegas at Freedom Fest when he's asked out of the blue a question from the audience by a woman named Maria Butina, a Russian woman who just happened to be there. Um, Trump says, you know, if I get elected president, you won't need these sanctions. So he's
0: on the
1: record that he will lift sanctions on Russia. So, Michael, um, I'm sure nobody's more fascinated than you and David by uh, the way the public has reacted to all of the evidence, the overwhelming evidence about a Russian connection. Your book, Craig Unger's book, and and then the icing on the cake was the Mueller investigation. It sort of put a human face on all of these facts. Why do you think that this hasn't gotten traction with the American public? Where's the rage in the American public? Well, is it yeah, that, look, is it that a very Trump's anti-media uh, uh, rant is actually paying off and making people soften their feeling about it?
2: Um, you know, look, um, the Mueller report um, was, uh, a, a, you know, had a lot of important material in it. I mean, it established, you know, beyond any, um, uh, beyond doubt that the Russians mounted this unprecedented campaign to disrupt our election, to influence our election. It was the hacks of emails. It was the dumping of emails. It was the social media manipulation by the internet research agency. It was the probing of state election systems. And that the Russian intervention was welcome. By the Trump campaign, Russia. If you're listening, I hope you can find, you know, those missing emails of Hillary Clinton. Trump uh, was, uh, uh, you know, unabashed about uh, uh, reaching out to the Russians, and although he would later say it a joke, it was a joke. Uh, the Russians didn't view it that way. Within hours after Russian made, after Trump made those statements, they were probing Hillary Clinton's own personal uh, computer uh, uh, servers trying to find the emails that Donald Trump was looking for. So they were talking to each other through, uh, through the worldwide media <laughs> um, and in public forums. But I think that for a lot of people, the Mueller report was a disappointment because people's expectations uh, were set too high. Um, You know, you had this thing called the Steele dossier, which we write a lot about in the book, which actually ended up making a lot of allegations that did not bear out, that could not be substantiated. And in fact, in some cases were proven to be false. And yet the, um, you know, I got to say the media uh, has some responsibility here because they played these up as though it was all true. And when Mueller could not substantiate some of the allegations you heard repeatedly on MSNBC and, uh, and CNN, uh, I think there was a
1: letdown and it there was a lot of Trump salacious say, stuff in there that attracted vindicated. people's attention. And when that turned out to be false and kind of buried the whole thing, yeah, exactly. I, well, mean, I it was more think, than
2: just the the, the so-called P-tape that did not yeah. bear out. There were other claims about a well-developed conspiracy that simply wasn't what we were looking at. What we were looking at was something else, very serious, um, absolutely deserved attention. But it was not. It did did not fit the conspiracy
1: theories of the Trump critics. I just want to ask you one more thing. About, you were talking about the emails, uh, and, and that is. What do you think the future for Julian Assange is? Why has he gone dark all of a sudden? And Well, he's there... in, isn't he in jail right now awaiting extradition? So is that what it is? I mean, uh, yeah. I...
2: I mean, he's, you know... Um, uh, uh, He's been indicted in the United States. Okay, uh, so it's going through an extradition hearing, and uh, you know, look, he was willingly used uh, as either as an accomplice or a stooge of the Russians. He was used to dump these emails, and um, uh, didn't show much curiosity if he if he knew where they were coming. If he knew where they were coming from and didn't disclose it, then he was concealing important information from uh, the, the, the public. If he didn't know, he showed a remarkable curiosity, um, lack of curiosity uh, <laughs> about where he got his material.
0: Can you clarify for all of us the Roger Stone connection? What is his role? Does he help the Russians understand what to dump when?
2: No. And, and you know, that's, again, another one of the, Claims that were not borne out by um, Robert Mueller's investigation. Um, Roger Stone um, is an opportunist. Um, Roger Stone is a self-styled dirty trickster. Uh, Roger Stone was doing everything he could to uh, try to uh, establish a relationship with Julian Assange and learn what was in the uh, stolen emails that Assange was given access to. Um, and then trying to use the suggestion that he did know to curry favor with Donald Trump himself. But in fact, I mean, Roger Stone was prosecuted for brazenly lying to the House Intelligence Committee about his efforts to um, communicate with WikiLeaks. But if you look closely at the evidence in the trial, it's pretty clear that um, he never did. Or if he did, the, US, the FBI and all the US intelligence agencies couldn't find the evidence for it because he was never uh, it was never shown that he did have a relationship with um, uh, with WikiLeaks. So, in many respects, the whole Roger Stone case was a case of bullshitters bullshitting other bullshitters. <laughs> and um, you know, uh, you know, and and had Roger Stone not so you know egregiously lied about what he was trying to do um, to the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, he probably never wouldn't have gotten into the jam that he's in.
1: But all that seems to be lost when you see the Department of Justice trying to soften the sentences and all that. Then it makes it seem a little more nefarious. And you kind of forget what the original charge was, and it just seems all very, very underhanded. Uh, Yeah.
2: And look, uh, the uh, the the conduct of the Barr Justice Department here has only fueled the questions about uh, about all these cases. And, um, you know, I'm I'm a little surprised because I've known William Barr for years. I covered him when he was uh, attorney general the first time around. Um, I always uh, thought he was a pretty smart guy and pretty smart and politically savvy guy. Um, uh, there was never any question that he was uh, a, a political partisan, but you know he was—he, he, you know, he knew the law. He had a pretty good sense of the way the Justice Department worked, and you know, by most accounts, um, he was a reasonably successful Attorney General the first time around. And this time around, whether it's because he's working for Donald Trump or his you know, or he spent too much time uh, in semi-retirement watching Fox News. Um, He has uh, not shown uh, any political deafness at all in his handling of cases. And while I think he's convinced himself that uh, there were um, oversteps by the Mueller team and oversteps by the FBI, um, he hasn't been, um, uh, he's, he's ended up undermining uh the 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 justice department and the most important uh in the most important thing it has which is um you know a public acceptance that they uh, are going to handle criminal cases without fear or favor without political influence that's been ingrained in our political culture since watergate and william barr for whatever reason does not seem to have understood that the way he's handled these matters relating to those Mueller prosecutions has undermined the most important thing that the Justice Department has. Uh,
1: He he supposedly uh, espouses the unitary executive theory where there's nothing more powerful than the president, so he doesn't have to be held responsible for anything. I don't know how anybody that understands the Constitution of the United States thinks that's the way America's supposed to act. It doesn't seem right Yeah, to
2: me. I mean, look, uh, the unitary executive theory, like all theories about the law, can be interpreted in different ways. Um, there's certainly plenty of respectable conservatives who have uh, propounded the, the unitary executive theory, and we had a number of Supreme Court justices, uh, most prominently Antonin Scalia, who accepted it, but... Um, you can stretch it way beyond where uh, most people would uh, would want it to go uh, into scary lengths. Um, you know bar um, you know Barr is a puzzle to me, like I said, because I've known the guy for a long time, and I'm just really surprised he's gotten into as many messes as he has. As do you
0: feel or do you have any kind of theories that Republican representatives And perhaps Barr and perhaps uh, Michael Flynn, for example, are also beholden to Putin or or Turkey? Or do you speculate about, you know, what's the underbelly like? What are we going to learn within the next five years about what really, what was motivating all these individuals?
2: Well, I think we've learned a lot. And I think we know a lot, and a lot of it is a matter of public record. Look, Michael Flynn, uh, you know, went to Moscow in December 2015, was paid to, to attend the 10th anniversary of RT, the Russian propaganda station, ended up sitting next to Vladimir Putin uh, at, the, um, uh, at, at the gala dinner, celebrating this, you know, propaganda station that regularly seeks to... Uh, uh, portray the United States in the worst possible light of all that was a sort of uh, egregious uh, a, a step for a former US director of the Defense Intelligence Agency and uh, you know he becomes Trump's national security advisor and you know like Trump sloughed off all questions about Russia um, uh, viewed it as uh, the whole Russia story is coming from the uh, from Democratic partisans and um you know then has these conversations with um uh, ambassador kislyak the russian ambassador uh during the transition uh which he proceeds to lie about uh, to the fbi now i think that um flyn was um uh you know Flynn acted in ways that are inexplicable except once you learn that why once you sort of try to connect the dots to figure out why he would lie about his conversations with kislyak and you go back when it first gets reported that he was talking to the russian ambassador during the transition about sanctions on russia on january 12 2017 by david ignatius in washington post trump upon seeing this report, pounds the table and says, kill the story, kill the story. He doesn't want any attention to the fact that one of his people was talking to the Russian ambassador. Remember, the Trump campaign has already said there were no contacts with the Russians at all, and here seemed to be fresh evidence that there were indeed contacts, at least during the transition period. So Flynn being the good soldier, bows to the president's wishes and proceeds to deny. He had conversations that he very clearly did. Um, so I think it was Flynn's efforts to please the big guy, Donald Trump, that got him into the mess that he did. And that, this may be the one known case where Donald Trump may actually have had some remorse. He knew that Flynn was doing his bidding when he lied about these conversations. And that's why, very shortly, what's the first thing he does as president that gets him into real trouble? He says to Comey, I hope you can see fit to let Michael Isn't he just
0: really afraid that people are going to flip? Everyone has stories. He's dealing with people who have their own version of those dealings. So isn't he just terrified that when someone flips, it's going to be.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, now. listen, I—that's certainly worth speculating about. But at this point, I think we got to stick to the facts. Michael Flynn had, you know, more than a year of cooperation with Robert Mueller's team. He was interviewed for hours and hours and hours, and Mueller's people were satisfied that he told them everything he had to tell them, and they went to court and said. You know, he's been a good cooperating witness and you should and he doesn't need to go to jail. If Michael Flynn had accepted his guilty plea, which he pled to twice, um, you know, he would have been a convicted felon, but he never would have been threatened with any jail time. Um, So I think the idea that Flynn had some deep, dark secrets to tell, um, you know, you have to you have to stack that up against the fact that Mueller's team had more than a year crack at him, grilled him about everything, checked everything he had to say, and, um, you know, reported what they reported. And it didn't, you know,
1: didn't go much beyond what we write about in Russian roulette. Michael, we want to talk about the uh, great expansion of your, of your book. Uh, I just want to ask you a couple more questions. How uh, dominant do you think the Russian trolls are going to be in the 2020 election. Have we become sufficiently aware to sort of ward off the effect of that or are we exactly where we were in 16?
2: Well, look, I think we are a lot more attuned to what the Russians could do and and particularly on the social media front because one of the striking things when uh, David Korn and I were writing Russian Roulette uh, that we discovered is that while the internet research agency that russian troll farm in st petersburg that was so active creating phony uh twitter bots and phony uh facebook accounts all masquerading as american political actors when they were really just troll russian trolls in st petersburg all that the u.s intelligence community was completely blind to it it nobody was watching it nobody was detecting what the Russians were up to in real time. They knew about the hacks. They knew about the dumping of emails. They knew about the probing of state election systems. But, you know, when you go, when you reconstruct all the White House conversations under President Obama about this, the social media component never came up. It was a massive intelligence failure by um, U.S. intelligence agency. And one other question
1: did- about that, and then we'll talk about the book, I promise. And, and
2: now clearly we do. So I think yeah. that, you know, so and, and, and the social media companies know about it
1: as well. That's what I wanted to ask you about, the, the, the culpability of the social media companies. Now Facebook's under fire. Do you think this is a, a thing where we should allow them to self-police, or is it time for us to get Congress to enact some structure into this? That's a huge question, and, you know, you're
2: getting Congress involved, and, you know, God knows what you could come up with, what they would come up with, and whether it would be better. But I, I listen, this is one of the biggest uh, issues that um, we have to grapple with as a country, because it's so central to our democratic dialogue, Um you know, are these social media companies that have become the main source of news for a huge chunk of Americans, um, you know, are they responsible actors? And uh, are they willy-nilly letting a lot of very malicious actors get access to their platform to uh, present fake news and propaganda uh, as, real, uh, as real media? Um, and, um, you know, I think the, uh, the, the, the Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, you know, I mean, they're learning, they know that this is a hot issue and you're seeing much more, um, self policing, but whether it's enough, uh, is, um, you know, that's, you know, we're just going to have to wait and see. It is worth noting that Facebook during 2016 was selling all these hundreds of ads to uh, the internet research agency trolls, which were paying for them in rubles and yet never (laughs) raised any questions about whether they really were who they said they were.
0: Do you think that content consumers are more informed this uh, election cycle to where, at least if you're not a member of the QAnon cult, (laughs) you might see something and and say, "Eh, I don't know about that. Because I also think that Russians are, they're creating websites and they're creating viral content to own the libs, like the guy that was licking all, all, all of the disinfectants in, in a store, uh, you know, just yeah. stuff that they know will enrage us. That's actually a lot of it I've heard is created by Russians just to drive liberals crazy and distract us.
2: Um, You know, well, first of all, we should point out it's not just the Russians. I mean, I think that, you know, there are other nation state adversaries, the Chinese, the Iranians, the North Koreans that are playing in this space as well. Um, and, um, uh, and, the, and there are non-state actors that have an interest in manipulating social media in the United States. So this is not just a Russian thing, but I think the thing that, um, I would be most concerned about at this point is the, um, uh, the development of, uh, a deep fake, technology using AI, artificial intelligence, where you can make really crazy. compelling, seemingly um, uh, legitimate videos of people saying things they never said. And, um, you know, in those last days of the election, um, maybe the last hours of the election. I will, you know, I think it's entirely plausible that we will see these sort of things popping up left and right, and you know, at a time when it'll be impossible. For people to push back and get the real truth, Um, uh, you know, a video of Joe Biden saying all sorts of nonsensical things, right, Um, which just pops up on the internet a day before the election, and then you know, gets widely circulated, goes viral. That's, I think, the the danger because it will look so real, it will Mm -hmm. look so legitimate. So. that's Michael, tell us. Yeah, uh, I got to tell be... folks
1: the, the the four people in America that haven't read your book, uh, as Nancy Pelosi says a couple times a month, all roads lead to Putin. And if you want a spectacular primer on the on the tributaries that lead to the Russian connection, you need to read Russian Roulette. And I'm anxious to hear about the changes and the additions. <laughs> there it is. The, it looks pretty good in soft cover too, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah, it's got the
2: words uh, "number one New York Times bestseller" on it, so we like it's that. It's really <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> right. So you
1: you said you added some things.
2: Yeah, we added some new material. Uh, actually, we wrote this um, before the Mueller report came out, uh, and um, uh, we want we we wanted to add material from the Mueller report. Uh, although I got to say, um, you know, almost everything we wrote held up pretty pretty darn well. Um, so we didn't have to. Change a lot, but we did add a bit from the Mueller report. And the other thing we did was, uh, uh, you know, did an epilogue uh, on the impeachment battle, which, you know, was seen as the Ukraine scandal, but as we make clear, it was really just the flip side of the Russia story. Um, The Ukraine is, you know, Trump's machinations about uh, uh, you grew out of. his determination uh, to undercut the Mueller investigation. One of the things we did in the epilogue that's kind of interesting is we just reconstructed Donald Trump's morning on July 25th, 2019. That's the morning of his fateful phone call with uh, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, where he says, I hope you can do us a favor though. And so what was Trump doing that morning? Um, He was in the White House residence, holed up in the residence, glued to the TV, watching Fox and Friends, uh, reveling in Fox and Friends coverage of Robert Mueller's testimony the day before before the House Judiciary Committee. And if you remember, um, this was a somewhat underwhelming performance by Mueller. He was reluctant witness. He didn't really want to be there. He got confused at times about aspects of of what was in the report, although he did make clear that its bottom line conclusions about a uh, sweeping and systematic campaign by the Russians to interfere in the election uh, was real, and that um, uh, there were uh, truly troublesome acts of obstruction by uh, the president himself uh, to try to impede his inquiry. But what and and Trump is watching this. He's reveling in it. He's tweeting about it. Impeachment. It's over. He tweets that morning. You know, uh, Mul the Mueller. Uh, uh, investigation has been discredited. He is reveling in it. It is Trump's time for what his former Homeland Security advisor described as getting his pound of flesh. He now wants revenge for all mm-hmm. of those uh, oh, people yeah. who put Mueller up to, where, to 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 his appointment, who um, uh, talked about the Mueller inquiry, who you know, enabled the uh, investigation of him. And there's something else that's interesting that morning. Released that very morning a new Quinnipiac poll that shows Trump losing by eight points to Joe Biden in the state of Ohio, perhaps the most single, crucial, most battleground state no Republican has ever been elected without carrying Ohio. Biden was the only Democratic candidate who beat him there, so you take those two data points, reveling in the in the in in, in Mueller's underwhelming performance, um, uh, determination to get his pound of flesh, and the concern about Joe Biden, and it tells you everything you need to know. Wow. What happened that morning? Fox and Friends goes off the air at nine a.m. at nine o three. Three minutes later. The White House switchboard patches through the phone call to Zelensky. So I have a
0: question for you, Michael, regarding that phone call specifically and then Fox. When Trump says to Zelensky, so I understand you guys have the DNC server. Is he does he really think that or is he just the perfect Fox viewer who's buying into whatever that that is the single wackiest
2: conspiracy theory (laughs) uh, that, you know, you can dream up. And you know Trump is conspiracy theorist in chief, and you know that's how he, you know, it started with the birthers, and has continued, you know, throughout. Uh, but the idea that the DNC servers somehow migrated thousands of miles away to some basement uh, in Kiev is just absurd. There's not a single uh, piece of evidence that would support this um but you know trump's obsession is is he cannot accept the fact that the russians did what they did and so therefore he's got to come up with alternative Explanations. Uh, We did a a, um, six part podcast series last year for Yahoo called Conspiracy Land, in which we focused on one in particular that was the conspiracy theories about Seth Rich. Seth Rich was the young Democratic National Committee staffer who was tragically killed in a botched robbery on the streets of Washington in July of 2016. But to Trump allies and the Russians, Seth Rich became you know, exhibit A for this conspiracy theory that it was actually he who leaked the DNC emails to WikiLeaks. It wasn't the Russians. Therefore, the entire Russia story was a hoax and had nothing to do and had nothing to it. And by the way, because he leaked those emails, Hillary Clinton's operatives conspired to assassinate him. On in, in So in is the, your thesis
0: Russia. that Russia is cooking up these theories that they know will take hold in right-wing America?
2: Uh, and and we actually showed that uh, very clearly in conspiracy land that um, in some respects some these theories were planted by Russian intelligence operatives and then amplified by Russian bots the the same internet research agency that was posting all these phony Twitter bots masquerading as Americans and and Facebook ads they were also promoting the Seth rich conspiracy theories because it Um, it it undermined the Mueller investigation. Uh, To those who believed it, it would get Russia off the hook. And of course, by the way, eventually these conspiracy theories migrate to Fox News and they're shouted, it's shouted from the rooftops by Sean Hannity and
1: his cohorts. I think the most disturbing thing about this pattern is not that they're created because evil expands to the space it's given, But what drives me the craziest is the number of people that buy these hideously ridiculous theories. Anybody, you don't even have to read a newspaper. It just violates um, uh, uh, what makes sense. That's what scares me the most.
0: But it's somehow in alignment with their values. And so they they just eat it up. Well, our show is called Media Path because we want to explore everywhere one could possibly travel if they're obsessed by a topic. So I'm going to go through a reading list of what I consumed after Trump was elected. And uh, it's a little feverish, so forgive me. Uh Russian Roulette by Mike Lysikoff and David Korn. Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. Unbelievable by Katie Turr, Facts and Fears by James Clapper. Fire and Fury by Michael Wolff. Fear by Bob Woodward. Red Notice by Bill Browder. House of Trump, House of Putin by Craig Unger. What Happened by Hillary Clinton. The Plot to Hack America and the Plot to Destroy Democracy by Malcolm Nance. Uh, a Higher Loyalty by James Comey, The Threat by Andrew McCabe, Crime in Progress by Glenn Simpson and Peter Frisch. And Fritz, have you got your reading list?
1: Well, I read all I read. A lot, well, I didn't read all of those. I can't lie to you. But I read a lot of them. And I, I added two to the list, American Carnage by Tim Alberta, which is a little dense. I don't know if you read it, Michael, but it's a it's a great sort of a uh, an autopsy of the Republican Party leading up to Trump, and I found it fascinating. Yeah, yeah, no,
2: I, it's a very good book, and we had Tim Alberta on our pod on our Skullduggery podcast.
1: And one other one uh, that I read, and I want to I want to before you decide to leave us, ask you about it's Dark Towers, David Enrich or Enrich, that was a Wall yep. Street Journal investigative reporter that goes into the Deutsche Bank collapse and the Deutsche Bank connection to all this. And my question to you is, do you think that if and when the Supreme Court or wherever this thing sits now in the appeals court decides to allow or force them to release their records to Congress, that that will be the treasure trove that sort of buttons up all that you suggested in Russian roulette and these other these other um, books have suggested. Yeah, well, there's, there's a lot of ifs there
2: and assuming that um, uh, the Supreme Court will, in fact, order those Deutsche Bank records to be turned over. I don't know. Um, uh, but from what I know, um, it, look, it, we do know that Deutsche Bank was the one bank that was... Um, willing to lend to Donald Trump when nobody else would, when everybody, every other bank knew that he was a deadbeat. Every other bank knew about his track record for bankruptcies in Atlantic city. Um, everybody else was wary of him, but uh, Deutsche bank, uh, for reasons that I, you know, David, you know, writes about in the book, uh, the, uh, um, the, the, the pressure to come up with new you know uh, brand name high name clients the uh, uh, the fact that he was a celebrity, the personalities involved established relations with Trump and they agreed much to their later regret to lend all this money to uh, Donald Trump and the trump organization I, at the same time we do know that the um, that Deutsche Bank um, was implicated uh, in uh, laundering money for various Russian oligarchs and other Russian entities. But I have yet to see any evidence that connects those two threads, the loans, and, and, and I questioned David Enright, who wrote the book about this, and he too agrees he has no evidence that can connect the Russian money laundering to the um, loans to Donald Trump, two separate entities, two separate parts of the bank, um, and, um, and 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 I'm not even sure it it makes sense that um, the 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 Russian money laundering activities would have anything to do with the funds that go to Donald Trump. So look, anything's possible. I'm I'm open to, and I think anytime you put the microscope on Donald Trump's finances, I mean clearly we know there's plenty. He's tried to hide. Uh, there's plenty uh, that has not been available for public inspection. He's the only president that hasn't released his tax returns. He still hasn't. Um, so anything is possible, but I would not um, want to pin my hopes on that particular claim bearing out.
0: Well, there may not be a, a direct connection, but they certainly saw him as amoral. And that's your your your, your perfect uh, useful idiot is somebody that has no more- Yeah, and
2: there's no question that 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 Russians and Saudis and Emiratis and others saw Trump properties as uh, investments they would want to make, and, uh, and bought them through LLCs, and um, uh, it, and that's a very good way of laundering money. It's not unique to the Trump organization. It's a phenomenon that you know we've seen across the board in American real estate has been used as ways for a lot of shady characters around the world, not just American real estate, you know, British real estate in London, London Stan. Um, uh, you know, this is, this is some this is a worldwide phenomenon.
1: Well, You've much been you really have... generous with your time, uh, Michael. I, I just wanted to ask you a writerly question. How do you write sure. a book with another person? How did you and David split the responsibility? <laughs> Ask
2: David about that. Um, you know, this is our second book together, and um, you know we're both uh, pretty uh, ornery, uh, stubborn characters. So there's a lot of back and forth. But in two cases, the Iraq War book, *Ubris*, and *Russian Roulette*, we got it done, and uh, it, it turned out very well. And I think we're split both pretty proud of the products.
1: Do you? Do you uh, take an area that one has an expertise in and the other doesn't yeah i mean there was a lot of uh, dividing up Uh, we
2: both uh, had intensively reported on the trump russia connection during the 2016 campaign we both had our own wealth of sources uh, that we were able to uh, tap into uh, for this and um, you know i I think we were um, um, the the I think we did the most comprehensive account of Trump's Russia dealings that anybody's done.
0: I agree. Well, can you tell us what you are currently investigating? Uh, no. I,
2: oh, can't. I can't tell you uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, a lot of uh, juicy material. And these days, there's no shortage of things to investigate.
0: All right, excellent. Well, I'm going to thank you so much for being with us while, and then read the closing credits. Uh, we are Media Path with Fritz Coleman and Louise Palanker. Our producer is Gina Friedman. Our engineer is Francesco Demanda, Our sound mixer is John Maddox. Our webmaster is Bill Filipiak. Our theme music is Journals by Louise Palenker. We are so thankful to our guest, Michael Isikoff. Thank you for being with us.
1: A real honor, Michael. Thank you for spending
0: so much time. Thank you. Great to be with you.